0: Hello, 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 and welcome ladybirds and gentle lemurs to the Human Nature podcast. Here we explore the ups and downs of being homo sapiens and learn a thing or two on how to be a better animal. My name is Elliot Connor, and I'm at least half elephant, but the star of the show today is none other than Jim Thomas, an Australian zoologist, explorer, and conservationist. Welcome, Jim.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Well, I can tell you straight off that Jim has one heck of a story behind him, and I'm so glad to have him on the show today. Your work, of course, revolves around the amazingly diverse communities of Papua New Guinea, where you've devoted your life to protecting an equally wonderful array of endangered tree kangaroos through the Tenkile Conservation Alliance since 2003, You've been commended for the Peter Rawlinson Conservation Hero Award, awarded the Australian Geographic Conservationist of the Year Award, and hold an adjunct fellowship with Deakin University. You've raised four million US dollars in funding to protect the island's fauna, and I'm told you're also fluent in pidgin English. Tell me though, you've still got a good number of years ahead of you. What's your grand vision for the decade to come? And what do you hope to achieve?
1: Well, yes, as you said, been working in Papua New Guinea for a long time. It's 17 years, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say, Elliot, that I've got a lot of years to come, because um, it's, it's good to hear that. Um, so in the decades to come, well, we want to finally get the Torricelli Mountain Range Conservation Area over the line with the government. We're very close at the moment in the last stages of approval. And that's the total habitat of the Tenkele tree kangaroo, and the other critically endangered tree kangaroo in that mountain range called the Waimang. So in answering your question, it's getting that established and getting the management plan rolled out much better with the villages and seeing if we can expand that area because as we've found with our work, the numbers of the tree kangaroos are increasing and they're just being found in areas where they haven't been seen for a long time. So we have to go into villages which now have it on their land that didn't before. So that's, that's the plan for the next 10 years
0: A fine objective to be sure And I know all of our listeners are fully behind you In making this dream a reality On Human Nature we like to have our guests speak About an animal that's dear to them You've worked with a few in your time uh, Helmeted honey eaters, orange bellied parrots Brush tailed rock wallabies, deadbeaters possums And eastern barred bandicoots As well as the tree kangaroos So it must be a challenging choice for you, though I imagine I can still tell which species you'll pick. What is it that draws you to tree kangaroos, and to the Tenkele tree kangaroo in particular?
1: Well, thanks for mentioning all of the other projects that I've been involved with, and that was a long time ago I worked with the helmeted honey eaters and orange-bellied parrots back in my zookeeping days. But it was those days that drew me to the tree kangaroos where they were in captivity at the Melbourne Zoo. And there was a big fuss around 1996 when the fellows there had a pouch young, they bred for the first time in a long time. And at the same time, Tim Flannery's book had come out on tree kangaroos and um, that really got me excited about it. And I was um, contemplating my honours at that point and I went on a field trip to far North Queensland with uh, Roger Martin, who's a tree kangaroo expert. And he'd done some work in PNG with Tim Flannery. And it was getting to know Roger on this field trip and sitting around the campfire and listening to his stories about his adventures with Tim Flannery in Papua New Guinea. And he was saying, well, the tenkele, it's it's probably going to be hunted to extinction. There's too many people. Um, too much pressure on the animals. And as for the Wyoming, it's probably already gone. And that really raised my interests, being a conservationist working with a number of other endangered species in, from Australia. I was just drawn to his stories and drawn to the book of Tim Flannery on tree kangaroos. And for whatever reason, and I can't exactly pinpoint it, I said to myself, I want to go to that, go to Papua New Guinea and I want to save the, both of those species, the tenkele and the Waimang tree kangaroos. And so that's, that's what got me going with the tree kangaroos and got us there in the first place. Yeah.
0: Wow. Now that's a mighty fine answer and just the tip of the iceberg I sense when it comes to this life's work of yours. I haven't mentioned it thus far, but of course you were behind the award-winning documentary Into the Jungle, which covers this quest of yours. Uh, with your wife, uh, made into Papua New Guinea, working with local communities to make them part of the solution in saving tree kangaroos. It features also David Attenborough and Jane Goodall, and I'd highly recommend it to all of our listeners. How did it feel to you to be able to tell your story in such a powerful way? And how did you approach the daunting task of changing the lifestyles of these local tribes, bringing them full circle as tree kangaroo protectors?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer the the question from the from the end there you know, with the with the people. How did we get them to become tree kangaroo protectors? Well, traditionally, they always were tree kangaroo protectors. So the Tenkele and the Waimang tree kangaroos all have ancestral stories. Some villagers believe that the tree kangaroo uh, is part of them; they evolved from tree kangaroos. Others have special cultural stories about where it evolved and how precious that area is, and and evil spirits are there, and we don't dare go there. So there have always been tree kangaroo protectors at heart, but with the influence of the West, the increase of the the human population, the pressures on the wildlife just became so much more. And so the Tenkele, which was always eaten, was eaten more by more people, more people out in the bush, more people killing it, to the point where it got critically endangered. So when Tim Flannery came in in the um, late 80s, He realised that it was on the brink back then. So we tried to initially stop the hunting and we established a hunting moratorium with the villagers and they agreed. But there was very much a prid quo quo attitude. Okay, we're going to sign this, but we want something in return. So we realised it was more about the people uh, in a sense than the animals. We had to help the people so that they wouldn't take out their animal, even though it was very important to them. So we had to rejoin their culture to their present way of thinking. And a lot of it was already there, but a lot of it had already been lost. So giving people the um, uh, the will and the acknowledgement of their culture that it is a conservation is important. And then we combined those uh, those attitudes and those um, that way of thinking and that attempted at behaviour change in conjunction with delivering community development projects and employment. So we looked at what the people really needed. How are we gonna change their behavior? What do they rightly need right now? And um, it was water. So we got funding from different avenues, most of the European Union, and we put water tanks in these villages. And so that changed people's behaviour by changing their life in that they had fresh water, less waterborne diseases, less workload for women. It resulted in less domestic violence. Kids were able to do their homework after school and get better grades, and it just changed. And uh, that was the way of rejoining the culture with the people uh, and getting them catching up with modern days of... um, of living, you know, basic human rights being delivered to them. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. No, really wonderful. And that's such a powerful, inspiring story. There certainly are those species which everyone knows about, and there are those which everyone should know about. Tree kangaroos uh, really fall in that latter category. Uh, semantically, they're grouped with their ground dwelling cousins, but biologically, their lifestyles couldn't be more different. I was trying to figure out how best to describe them before the show and arrived at a cross between your stock standard red kangaroo and maybe a lemur as the closest approximation for their physical appearance. I wonder, Jim, how much do we know about these elusive creatures and how much is there still to find out?
1: Uh, well, there's this. we do know a fair bit about them, but there is a lot to find out about their life history. And it's not just a case of, oh, there's a tree kangaroo, there's 14 species of them, and they're placed into three different groups on the evolutionary scale. And um, their closest relative to uh, the land, well, the land-dwelling kangaroos is actually the rock wallabies. And if you think about it, the big kangaroos, such as the red kangaroos you mentioned, the eastern greys, um, you would never imagine them bounding through uh, trees. But then when you get to the smaller wallabies, you can see, okay, the rock wallabies, they're fairly agile on the rocks. And they in captivity especially. You will see them in trees. Um, So there's the evolutionary um, road, if you like. But it actually started um, from possums. So tree kangaroos evolved from possums. The possums went down to the ground. Those possums evolved into kangaroos with the Australia becoming more arid and for whatever reason there was the niche in the rainforest that hadn't yet been occupied there was a a gap there and some of those kangaroos re-evolved and went back into the trees and became tree kangaroos and um, they didn't regain their uh, the use of their tail see when they're possums the tail was prehensile when they evolved back into the trees as tree kangaroos it wasn't prehensile so it's very much like uh, like a kangaroo's is. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I can imagine working in some of the environments of these dense rainforests, it can't be easy learning more about their life story, filling some of those gaps in the knowledge. Reading up on these creatures, I came across uh, what should perhaps have been an obvious fact that Alfred Russell Wallace, who co-developed the theory of evolution with Darwin, encountered and wrote about uh, these species. He spent many years travelling in this part of the world and was quite intrigued by this process by which the kangaroos, which had descended, as you say, from the tree-dwelling possums, uh, had adapted perfectly to this life on land, yet then chose to change their lifestyle once more, uh, taking on uh, these arboreal features, having to readapt to the life in the trees. I'm not sure anyone's quite sure what this precise driver, what the mechanism was, Uh, which made them make this huge change, uh, this huge leap back. It did get me thinking, though, you've had the privilege of working with some of the greatest names in the space, with Attenborough and Goodall, as I mentioned before, with Tim Flannery as well, as you talk, uh, Australia's leading conservationist, and I'm sure many more besides. Is there someone you look up to most of all, or whom you draw inspiration from in your line of work? I mean, what got you so fascinated in natural history in the first place?
1: Natural history in the first place. I was just always drawn to nature and animals from a very early age, just uh, just intrigued and always, uh, you know, going out to different national parks with the family, Wilson's Promontory, Mount Hotham, and... Then uh, I kept a lot of animals in captivity. So I kept a lot of uh, snakes and lizards and frogs and birds and then was lucky enough to get a job at the zoo. And I think <clears throat> from working at the zoo and having that connection of animals in captivity, I made more of a connection with conservation and realised that there's so much more to it. And that's where I became more of a an, an avid conservationist. Here we've got... X what we're doing here in captivity, and it's a big part of it, but there's so much more that needs to be done. And I guess taking the inspiration from people like Tim Flannery, I I guess he is a main source of inspiration for me. It was his books and his stories that got me drawn into taking the next step. So in the case of the Tenkele, we're in a unique situation in that we were very lucky. Tim had gone in there, he described the animal he published six or seven papers and a couple of uh, three books and his adventure stories too, like throwing away a leg, you know, there's a chapter on the tank and his adventures there. And that really drew me in. So it was his writings. He inspired me to take that next step to become, you know, like an avid conservationist, look at the research, um, believe and trust in it and, um, do what's required to, to save the animals. And, um, that's basically what we've done. So yeah, so Tim Flannery's a main main uh, inspiration remains to be. We're in constant contact. He's a a patron of the Tankale Conservation Alliance, and um, yeah, we work with on, on a few other projects as well. He's a he's an Australian uh, Australian icon, and yeah, as you said, leading conservationist in Australia, absolutely.
0: Well, I think that's a mighty fine answer. And I'd just like to say once more on behalf of our entire audience, what an absolute pleasure it has been having you on the Human Nature podcast today. I'm lucky to have met some very passionate people as guests on the show, but I think it's safe to say you've the lot. It's been an absolute honour, Jim, talking to you about the 10 Calais and about your work. We'll both be back after the break uh, for the Human Nature Quiz Round, where Jim will compete against a small team of listeners on 10 specially prepared questions about kangaroos. Welcome back once more to the Human Nature podcast. Here on the show today is Jim Thomas, charity founder, community builder and tree kangaroo conservationist. But as this is the Human Nature quiz round, he'll be facing up against a team of two randomly selected audience members for the chance to prove his wits in a series of questions about kangaroos and other Aussie critters. Jim, are you feeling confident?
1: Oh, reasonably confident on this Saturday morning, Elliot. Thank you.
0: Wow, wow. I like the confidence and we'll soon find out whether you've got the whips to run leaps and bounds ahead of this competition of yours. Without further ado, our contestants facing up against Jim are Ethan and Paul. Ethan is joining us from Northern Ireland in the UK where it is, I believe, 1am in the morning. So thank you, Ethan, for joining the show. Hopefully you can battle through and perhaps gain a victory? And we have Paul, who's a returning contestant. He performed very well against Nancy on Space Animal Questions, but how will he fare on Kangaroo Trivia? How are you both feeling? Do you two think you can best, Jim, at this 10 Aussie Animal Trivia Tidbits? Well... I don't know, it is morning, I haven't had breakfast, and this topic is on kangaroos, so it makes me feel a bit more hungry than usual, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I stand any chance at all, like, I love animals, not gonna lie, been to many zoos, but I don't even know if my brain's gonna work tonight, but, yeah, I'll give it a go. Wow, wow, well it's a fine team we have, that's for sure, uh, but straight to the point. The rules of the game are simple. I'll read a question. Either contestant can, at any point, make their buzzer sound. The fastest to the mark gets to answer first, but if they get it wrong, then their opponent will have the chance to steal the point with the correct answer. The question one we will have Jim versus Paul. And the question is, when Captain Cook arrived in Australia and saw a kangaroo for the first time, which of these animals Did he not liken it to? Your options are a wolf, a hare, a deer, and an ostrich. Oh, Hmm. a fast answer from Paul. Paul, what are you going to say? Wolf. It's not a wolf, unfortunately. It was very fast, but incorrect. So, Jim, you'll have the chance to steal.
1: I think it's the ostrich.
0: The ostrich is a very fine answer. That is correct. So, Jim, you have one point from the first question. Very strong start. For question two, we'll have Ethan versus Jim. And your question is, cows and other ruminants like kangaroos and deer may produce large amounts of methane from their feeding strategy. But how much greenhouse gas do kangaroos make each day? Your options are 10 tons, 10 gallons, 10 grams, or none at all. Jim, what's your answer? It's
1: the the 10 grams, the lowest.
0: It's not the 10 grams, unfortunately. You're very, very close, though. Ethan, would you like the chance to steal? i say none at all. None at all is the correct answer. Very, very good. And unfortunately, Jim, you just missed out on that one. Kangaroos actually don't produce any methane or tool or any greenhouse gas. Uh, they're uniquely adapted to produce other gases from their feeding strategy, uh, which is quite fascinating if you think about it. Uh, there's some conjecture that if we can learn how they do it, I learned this... A mechanism of theirs, and we might be able to reduce uh, some of those emissions from farming strategies. Uh, but it's quite amazing that they have this unique ability and it allows them to reabsorb a lot of that nutrition, a lot of that energy. So uh, it's a very, very strong uh, start for both teams. Uh, Jim had a fine answer with Captain Cook and Ethan uh, took the Uh, Acetate, uh, which is the gas uh, they produce uh, As opposed to the methane Uh, So a strong start from both teams But question three We'll have Paul versus Jean And your question is When a young kangaroo is born How large is it? Your options are The size of a shoebox The size of a golf ball The size of a jelly bean Or the size of a grain of rice (laughs) Oh, I think that's a dead heat. We'll hear from Jim first though.
1: Size of a jelly bean.
0: The size of a jelly bean is a very good answer. Well done. Well done. Paul, what were you going to say? Same, same. Ah, oh, I'm sure you were, sure you were. <laughs> now, well done to both teams. Well done. It is a jelly bean indeed. Uh, They are born with a tiny, tiny size. It can be uh, as large as a jelly bean or even smaller. Uh, So it's quite incredible, this survival strategy of theirs. Uh, Kangaroos famously have a very brief pregnancy, uh, which allows them to adapt to the changing conditions they live in uh, to make the most of uh, scarce resources when they're available. Uh, But a jelly bean is correct. So we have Jim on two and Ethan and Paul on one point. Going into question four, we'll have Ethan versus Jim. Your question is, again, on the theme of niche kangaroo knowledge. How long does it take a tiny young kangaroo, this jelly bean sized kangaroo at birth, to make the journey from uh, where it's born to one of its mother's teats? Your options are... Three weeks, three days, three hours, or three minutes? Oh, Ethan just got in there first. Ethan, what are you going to say? Three minutes. I'm going to go for it. Three minutes is the correct answer. Very, very well done, <laughs> That's another point to Ethan and Paul. So it will be two all moving into question five. Indeed, it takes them three minutes to make this journey of theirs. Uh, They'll uh, then move and uh, go to the teats and stay there for up to a month until they move into the pouch, uh, but continue suckling for many, many months until they're displaced, of course, by the next Joey coming along. Uh, But very well done, very well done. We're still on a dead heat So, Jim and Paul, your question is, question five, Kangaroo Island is so named because... You may choose A, because Captain Cook first spotted the creatures there, B, because explorer Matthew Flinders made a meal of the creatures on his passing by, C, because fossil evidence shows the creatures evolved near the island, or D, because the local tourism board thought it would be good for business oh that was very close again but paul you're just in first i imagine it's got to do with tourism tourism is a good answer but it's not the right answer so jim would you like to steal
1: yeah matthew flinders ate one i think it's that one
0: That's a very, very strong answer. Yes, indeed, Matthew Flinders passing by uh, on one of his long journeys made a meal of some of the local kangaroos. I believe it was a soup uh, from uh, several of the kangaroos. Uh, I don't know what kangaroo soup tastes like, uh, but that's how the island got its name. Uh, Indeed, Kangaroo Island is so named because of the kangaroo soup Matthew Flinders uh, made on the island. So we have Jim on three points and Ethan and Paul on two points. You have question six coming up and question six will be Ethan versus Jim. Your question is, in the Bajangji Aboriginal language, the word kangaroo means either horse, kangaroo, wombat or I don't understand. Jim, Jim, what's your answer?
1: I'm going to say I don't understand.
0: Oh, it's a fine answer, Uh, but it's not the correct answer, unfortunately. Uh, There's a popular misconception that kangaroo is Aboriginal for I don't understand, Uh, but we know now that isn't true. Uh, What happened actually is they first met uh, the local tribes where they landed. Uh, who had the kangaroo word uh, to mean the animal, of course, the kangaroo. Uh, But as they moved further inland, uh, these new tribes they encountered uh, found the word kangaroo, and the Bajanji were one of them. And they adopted this word for the horses of the settlers, uh, taking it to mean these animals they didn't know. Uh, So horse indeed is the correct answer for this question. Uh, That was a tough one, Mm. Uh, but neither team will score. So we have Jim still on three points and Ethan and Paul on two. Paul and Jim, your question is question seven. The western grey kangaroo, the fastest of the species, famously smells like which culinary dish? Your options are stir fry, lasagna, Caesar salad or curry. Paul, I think you were just first there. What's your answer? Caesar salad,
1: because I've never smelt Caesar salad. I would...
0: Indeed, I'm not sure what a Caesar salad would smell like, but it's not the correct answer, unfortunately. It's a very good try. Jim, would you like to steal?
1: Yeah, well, I know they're called stinkers as a nickname, so I'm going to guess with curry.
0: Curry is the correct answer. Very, very well done. Yes, Western grey kangaroos famously smell like curry, and perhaps Caesar salads smell the same, but I cannot confirm that or deny it. So, Jim, you will have the point for that question. You are leading 4 2. Ethan and Paul, do you think you can make?